0: Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this Toe Tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we like to call a Toe Tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh new release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. Today's featured release is One Last Betrayal by Valerie J. Brooks. One Last Betrayal was released September 2022 from Black Leather Jacket Press and is available from Amazon and other book retailers. This is the third part of a trilogy, so the first book is Revenge in Three Parts, also by Black Leather Jacket Press, October 2018, and Tainted Two Times by Brooks and Company, September 2022. All right, let's get started with the first chapter of One Last Betrayal. If I ever get out of this alive, I'm going to have a tattoo needled on my arm like others of my generation. Of what? I don't know. But if I'm alive, I'll be able to make a decision then. I'm throwing off the conservative persona that I once had as a criminal defense lawyer. My sister Sophie would be saying, it's about time. From Portland, Oregon, I'd hopped a red-eye and was on my way to Hollywood, Florida. I was, in the, I was back in the game and in the right headspace, ready to bring down the Boston mob once and for all, while protecting Bibi, my sister Sophie's twin. BB needed me. She was tough, but this mob had a new and young crime boss, Talia Sean Diamanis. She didn't play by the old-fashioned rules of monsters. Like the rest of the world, there was no honor anymore among thieves, whether they be members of gangs, political parties, or religious sects. There was no one-for-all and all-for-one, that only happened in movies. So to energize my fighting spirit, I put on my headphones and pulled up Rebel Yell, one of Sophie's old favorites, and put it on repeat. We used to jump up and down to that song in her living room, but that was before the mob. Yes, I was back in the game, but I wasn't happy that I had to leave my dog Tempest again. Had I ever come to love that dog that much, I'll never know. Maybe I relate to her being a rescue more probable is how much we've been together. The plane dropped and bumped, almost spilling my coffee. The pilot announced that we were hitting some turbulence and to keep our seatbelts fastened. I shook my head. What did he know about turbulence? Then the plane bucked and dropped hard, causing a few people to swear and the flight attendant to grab onto a seat. A child cried. I took a deep breath. The plane continued to buck and weave back and forth. Finally, it leveled out and a collective sigh went up from the passengers. My phone was clutched in my hand. I remained silent. I closed my eyes and leaned my head back. Why hadn't Bibi texted me? Maybe, hopefully, she'd fallen asleep. Bibi and I had been talking and texting for the past 24 hours about Sean and what to do about her. But what did you do with the mob boss telling you that you were part of her, quote, organization, whether you liked it or not? As my sweet dead husband Hank would have said, Bebe was in deep shit. And I knew what that deep shit was like. I'd been in it for years. Sean, well, she sure had cajones. She already broke into Bibi's apartment and in broad daylight. What I found frightening was how thoroughly Sean had prepared. She knew about Otto, Bibi's dog, a dog that should have scared the daylights out of her. But Sean had fed him a treat while telling Bibi that there would be a meeting of the three partners, and Bibi was expected to join them. Join them, as in becoming one of the partners. My main question was why? Why would Sean take such a risk as to get into Bebe's apartment just to tell her that she was expected to make this meeting? She could have met her in the, lo- in the lobby. I had a hunch. Sean needed to know the layout of the apartment and get friendly with the dog. She planned on breaking into the place again. Again, the question was why? Bebe Re- reported the break into management and a report was filed. The police notified. The security camera footage, which watched, nothing seemed to miss. Sean never showed her face and seemed to enter the apartment with no problem, so she could have had a duplicate key card. Nothing suspicious. Bibi was pissed because the police said she must have given Sean a card. As I would have said to Bibi, a large wad of cash would have bought a duplicate from someone in the hotel, or was that some type of master key card? My phone dinged and I jumped. It dinged with two more messages. It was Bibi. I'm in danger. I'm not paranoid. Otto keeps growling. There are footsteps outside my door and muffled voices. I didn't tell you this before, but I found incriminating evidence against the mob and Betty's stuff. I created a safe place for it. You'll figure it out. If something happens to me, promise you'll take care of Otto. You know what he's like. He's sweet and needs his ugly striped afghan. He also knows a lot. I reread the texts. Fuck. It was 4:02 a.m. We wouldn't land for another 2 hours. I texted back, "Don't answer the door, BB. Don't let anyone in. Call the police." I tried to stay calm. Footsteps and voices didn't necessarily mean anything. Maybe it was nothing more than a late-night revelers or an a uh, assassination. Oh my goodness, I butchered that. I tried to stay calm, footsteps and voices didn't necessarily mean anything, maybe it was nothing more than late night revelers, yet my heart raced. Sean had been there once, why not again? I texted another message and tried to convince myself that she would text back and say it was nothing. Had Otto barked at the noise? He wasn't much of a barker, more of a growler. He was a gentle brute the size of a Shetland pony, and there's only so much a dog could do against greedy criminals who were willing to kill people, never mind dogs but Sean had already made friends with them. Okay, what else? Bebe carried a gun. Good, but you had to be willing to shoot to kill. I knew very few people capable of that, even in a life or death situation. I sent another text. Do you still have your gun? Load and keep it handy. A text came in. I almost dropped my phone. It was my lawyer. I ignored him. I squirmed in my seat. Why hadn't Bibi told me about the incriminating evidence before? What did she plan to do with it? I chewed a cuticle. Maybe she really didn't trust me. Being trapped on a plane made it impossible to do anything. I had to keep my wits about me, though. Did Sean know about the incriminating evidence? I doubt it. My bet was on Sean targeting BB's inheritances two huge estates and all the assets. What a rat's nest of a relationship. BB's godmother, Betty Snayer, had been the crime boss of this mob until she died trying to kill me in Kauai. Before that, Betty had taken in a young, homeless, talented black girl, my half sister Bibi, and given her a life in the arts. Then Betty had fallen for Sean, at the time a streetwise, ragged, cor- coke snorter who had addicted Betty to sex and white powder. That left Bibi adrift to Betty's affections. So there I was with a new half sister who didn't know I had killed her sainted godmother. What a mess. The first-class flight attendant leaned over the empty seat next to me. Anything I can get you, Miss Porter? She smiled with her bright red lips, her eyes sparkling behind her cat-eye sunglasses. Scotch, please. A double. I wiped my sweaty palms on my jeans. After sending another message to Beebe, I waited. Again, nothing. Finally, resigned, I set the cell on the empty seat next to me, and when my drink came, I tried not to knock it back that was impossible. Maybe Bibi had called the cops, but I doubted it. I knew she didn't trust the FBI. Being African-American, she probably didn't trust the cops either, especially after what they did following up on Sean's break-in. I rubbed my chest, drew in some air, and let it go. Sophie often scolded me, saying I held my breath when stressed. Taking advice from my dead sister? Better late than never. I pushed up the window cover. The bright light made me wince. Below, the ocean bordered the serpentine edge of land. Lakes littered the middle of the state. The pilot announced that we were flying over Orlando and Disney World. People ooed and aahed. On the seat next to me, I found my notebook and pen under the New York Times, and as I flipped open the notebook, my hand trembled. I'd always been pretty good at compartmentalizing, something I found necessary as a lawyer but it was getting more difficult. I needed to keep my mind busy until I was off the plane and could make calls. I wondered where Gerard was. I figured from our conversations that he was back undercover with the mob. When I told him I was heading to Florida to help Bibi, he told me not to and was upset when I wouldn't back down. When he realized I wouldn't change my mind, he said he'd meet me there. Well, fine. I made a fist, squeezed, and then shook out my hand, needing to write something down maybe work through what I knew and come up with some sort of plan. Since my law school days, I've written to-do lists, observations, even lists of conjectures and theories about people and cases. It kept me focused. It also helped me solve dilemmas and even, at times, find something that wasn't immediately apparent. Clients were told to keep a journal of every move they made, with dates and times, plus anything that could help their case. People were unaware of the evidentiary heft of a written journal and what it provided when entered into the courts. I'd won several cases on the written word alone when the opposition had what I called a wormy case. But what to write? The scotch had warmed its way down to my body and I could feel my nerves relaxing, my brain focusing. I tapped the pen against my lower teeth. Going back to the beginning with Sean, I wondered why Betty had been interested in her. Betty said it was cocaine-fueled sex. I believe that. Betty was older and not a looker, so it could have been the excitement and a booster of her ego. I believe Bibi when she said Betty took Bibi in because she saw her talent and wanted to support her. But being a cynic at heart, I figured Betty had done that to make herself feel good. I'm sure it made her look good to her wealthy patron friends. Bibi was beautiful too, a dark version of Sophie. Twins from different fathers so that would give Betty even more cred for being inclusive, a great way to get grants from her non-profit art ventures. And there I go again, being the cynic. Flight attendant swooped in and removed my cold coffee. This time I ordered another scotch, a single, thinking about Gerard, my FBI special agent pain in the ass contact. In the beginning, he suspected BB was another of Betty's lovers, men, they always think sex is involved. Sometimes it was, I could attest to that. So how had Sean become the crime boss of Betty's mob? Maybe Betty had put her in charge when she went to Kauai. I know that Betty was using heavily by the time she came to the island. She was in Kauai, doing a godmotherly thing, setting up a hit on Bebe's brother who hated Bebe. Bebe was adopted, and and the parents favored her over their flaky son. Her brother lived communally on Kauai and dressed as the Grim Reaper to get people's attention about climate change. So he didn't fit his parents' mold. Bebe, however, was the golden child, always thankful for everything they did for her. But they died before their will had been changed and their brother inherited the bulk. Hating Bebe, he gave her nothing. Betty figured she'd get rid of the brother so Bebe would inherit. At least Betty felt that she was protecting Bebe. I wonder if Sean had put that idea into Betty's head thinking B.B. would eventually bring in even more assets to the organization. When I met Betty in Kauai, I didn't know I had a sister named B.B. I didn't know a lot of things. I was hiding out from the mob. They wanted the millions that my sister Sophie stole. But Betty knew who I was. I was the one who had killed one of her partners in self-defense. But that didn't matter to her. She must have been overjoyed to think she could take care of two marks on the same trip. I had to assume that Sean took over the crime boss portion when Betty and her bodyguard never made it back to Boston. Gerard and I thought Sean was a minor character, one of those people who target the wealthy to live luxuriously for a while, snort coke all day, and then when things go dumpster, they disappear. Well, she fooled us. Plus, I had to remember she was a good actor. Sean had gone from messed up street urchin to high couture. What really bothered me was her telling Bibi that she laundered the money for the mob. True, or was that a way to entrap Bibi? If Bibi knew that, she'd be vulnerable. If Bibi knew that, she'd be vulnerable. If she didn't join the mob, Sean was so smart. No matter her motive, I sipped my second scotch. If I kept in lawyer mode, I could keep my shit together. So, who was Sean? Did she have a police record? What was her MO? I'd lost the connection with Snoop, my hacker, just as she was going to tell me what she found on Sean. I haven't heard from her since, and that's not good. Sean might be a psychopath, but she had to be a strategist, someone with patience, someone who had planned her ascent through this crime group. This was conjecture, but her actions pointed to it. And this felt good, building a case, listing all the possibilities, hopefully tracing them to their logical conclusion, either with evidence or what I discovered in the process. I I listed questions about Sean, the strategist. Getting Betty hooked on cocaine loosens the tongue, makes her vulnerable. Reasons for admitting money laundering trap BB into the gang, something else. Need background check on her. Laundering takes guts, know-how, and connections. Has Sean already taken Bebe somewhere, under guise of meeting? How much does Bebe know about Betty? Maybe Sean knows more about Bibi than I do. I suspected that Bebe couldn't live in Betty's house all that time and not notice any illegal activities, but Bebe seemed to have no idea, and as she said, she'd been fully engaged in school, her art, and her friends plane's engine noise changed. We were ap- approaching Fort Lauderdale. I slipped down my shoes and buttoned my military-style jacket, readying myself for landing. I dressed with a casual elegance so people would take me seriously, but not authoritatively, as with a suit. Instead of perfume or aftershave, the cabin smelled like a locker room, and I hoped I didn't smell that way. I thought of how Gerard would smell when I met him. As if reading my mind, Gerard sent me a message. I'll get to the Cirque before you, meet you in the residency lobby. Between my teeth, I hissed, asshole. He insisted on meeting me in Florida, but I told him to do nothing until I got here. Well, that was like pissing in the wind with him. Finished the scotch. I couldn't get off the plane fast enough. The pilot came on the intercom with the usual instructions, telling everyone to take their seats, buckle up, seats upright, trays in position. The flight attendant quickly gathered up all the glasses and bottles. I snapped my tray into place, gathered up everything on the empty seat, and threw them into my satchel, something I brought because it was more like a briefcase, but not a briefcase. The flight attendant had just buckled herself in the w- when the plane dropped like a trap door had opened. Someone squealed. A kid cried. Then the plane leveled off. With my heart in my throat, I forced my mind back to Bibi and to Betty. From everything I knew, Betty wanted Bibi to devote herself to being an artist. What if Betty had recognized Sean's killer instinct and started grooming her to take over the business? I checked my cell phone one more time. Still nothing from. The plane headed toward the landing strip. I held the notebook against my chest. As a defense attorney, I'd met many criminals and can usually sniff out the liars. B.B.'s panicky text from Florida was not something easy to fake, but I had no body language to go with it to assure me she was being straight with me. Far too many unknowns. I sat back, closed my eyes, and prepared for landing. So that is the first chapter of One Last Betrayal by Valerie J. Brooks. So let's learn a little bit about Valerie. She is a multi-award-winning author and is the author of the Angeline Porter Trilogy, the one that you just heard me read the first chapter of. Femme noir thrillers er, starring a badass disbarred attorney. New York Times bestselling author Kevin O'Brien called her second novel, Tainted Two Times, a real natal biter from the first page to the last. Heather Gundikoff, New York Times bestselling author of The Weight of Silence and The Overnight Guest, calls Brooks the queen of the femme noir thriller and says her upcoming third novel, One Last Betrayal, is explosive and Brooks drops us into the dark underbelly of organized crime and we love her for it. Brooks is a member of Sister in Crime. Her awards include the Elizabeth George Foundation grant and five writing residencies. She teaches workshops and classes on writing noir and creating plot twists. Brooks found her love of thrillers as a teen after turning in a hitman to the FBI. She lives in Oregon with her husband, Dan Connors, and their Havanese pooch, Stevie Nicks. All right, so here is my review. So obviously, One Last Betrayal is a thriller. Angeline Porter is picking up where she left off from the second book in the series, Tainted Two Times, and she's putting it all on her line for her half-sister. Well, Bibi has disappeared, and based on the last few texts, it wasn't willingly. Angeline flies from Oregon to Florida to extract her sister from the hornet's nest that includes a local detective, an ethnically questionable FBI agent, a totally unethical mob queen, and a half-brother who only wants to be her family bottom line is one last betrayal is for you if you like intricately intricately woven plots that unravel one knot at a time all (laughs) right sorry about my tongue today it doesn't seem to want to wrap around some of these words so strengths of the story one last betrayal checks a lot of boxes on the thriller checklist first the lead character being in mortal danger check Angeline, who's also called Ange, Angie, and Porter, is held at gunpoint, beaten, and kidnapped. She jumps from frying pan to frying pan, never quite knowing where the fire is. Second, the story has to resolve within a certain amount of time. Check. After 24 hours, most missing person cases don't end with a living resolution, according to the book. That gives us our, this has to be done fast. Three, the motivations of the other characters are hidden from the lead. Check. Every one of the people helping Angeline has an ulterior motive, but those secrets are tightly held. So where did the story fall short of an ideal thriller? (coughs) Well, it's really common in thriller to have scenes from the points of view of multiple characters, and that enables us, the reader, to know what's going on and to even be a little anxious on behalf of our heroes. One Last Betrayal is only told from Angeline's point of view. So in a story based on false motives, Angeline becomes confused about what's really going on. And without the ballast of the other points of view for us to root ourselves in, that chaos element is pretty dominant in the middle section of the book. For those of you who thrive on chaos, well, you'll just love it. But for those of you who don't, stick with it and enjoy the ride. One Last Betrayal is the third book in a trilogy. I recommend reading the earlier books, Revenge in Three Parts and Tainted Times Two first. Miss Brooks' last installment continues with characters and situations built in the first two episodes. For maximum enjoyment, start with the beginning, likely an unnecessary recommendation as most of us readers wouldn't conceive of starting a series anywhere but book one. Links to all three books are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and tune back in next Friday for our mysteries to die for episode and then the toe tag the week after that thank you